Part Two, Chapter Six of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part Two, Chapter Six. For the first time in her young married life, Polly felt vexed with her husband. Oh, he shouldn't have done that. No, really, he shouldn't. She murmured, and the hand with the letter in it drooped to her lap. She had been doing a little surreptitious baking in Richard's absence, and without a doubt was hot and tired. The tears rose to her eyes. Deserting her pastry-board, she retreated behind the wood-stack and sat down on the chopping-block, and then, for some minutes, the sky was blotted out. She felt quite unequal in her present condition to facing Sarah, who was so sensitive, so easily shocked, and she was deeply averse from her fine lady sister discovering the straightness of Richard's means and home. But it was hard for Polly to secure a moment's privacy. "'And so this is where you're hiding, is it?' said Long Jim snappishly. He had been opening a keg of treacle, and held a sticky plug in his hand. "'And me, running my poor old legs off, are you?' And Hempel met her on her entry with, "'No further bad news, I hope and trust, ma'am.' Hempel always retained his smooth civility of manner. "'The shopman par excellence, my dear,' Richard was used to say of him. Polly reassured her attendants, blew her nose, re-read her letter, and other feelings came uppermost. She noticed how scribbly the writing was. Richard had evidently been hard-pushed for time. There was an apologetic tone about it, too, which was unlike him. He was probably wondering what she would say. He might even be making himself reproaches. It was unkind of her to add to them. Let her think rather of the sad state poor John had been found in, and of his two motherless babes— as for Sarah, it would have never done to leave her out. Wiping her eyes, Polly untied her cooking apron and set to reviewing her resources. Sarah would have to share her bed, Richard to sleep on the sofa. The children, and here she knitted her brows. Then going into the yard, she called to Tom Ocock, who sat whittling a stick in front of his father's house, and Tom went down to Main Street for her and bought a mattress which he carried home on his shoulder. This she spread on the bedroom floor, Mrs. Hermerda having already given both rooms a sound scouring, just in case a flea or a spider should be lying perdue. After which Polly fell to baking again in good earnest, for the travellers would be famished by the time they arrived. Towards ten o'clock Tom, who was on the lookout, shouted that the coach was in, and Polly, her table spread, a good fire going, stepped to the door, outwardly very brave, inwardly all a flutter. Directly, however, she got sight of the forlorn party that toiled up the slope, Sarah clinging to Hempel's arm, Mahony bearing one heavy child, and could she believe her eyes, Jerry staggering under the other. Her bashfulness was gone. She ran forward to prop poor Sarah on her free side, to guide her feet to the door, and it is doubtful whether little Polly had ever spent a more satisfying hour than that which followed. Her husband, watching her in silent amaze, believed she thoroughly enjoyed the fuss and commotion. There was Sarah, too sick to see anything but the bed, to undress, to make fomentations for, to coax to mouthfuls of tea and toast. There was Jerry, to feed and send off, with the warmest of hugs, to share Tom Ocock's palliasse. There were the children. Well, Polly's first plan had been to put them straight to bed, but when she came to peel off their little trousers she changed her mind. "'I think, Mrs. Hermerda, if you'll get me a tub of hot water, we'll just pop them into it. They'll sleep so much better,' she said, not quite truthfully. Her private reflection was, "'I don't think Sarah can once have washed them properly all that time.' The little girl let herself be bathed in her sleep. 
but young John stood and bawled, digging fat fists into slits of eyes, while Polly scrubbed at his massy knees, the dimpled ups and downs of which looked as if they had been worked in by hand. She had never seen her brother's children before, and was as heartily lost in admiration of their plump, well-formed bodies as her helper of the costliness of their outfit. "'Real Injun muslin, as I'm alive!' ejaculated the woman on fishing out their night-clothes. "'And with the sassiest lace for trimming! Och, the poor little motherless angels! Stand quiet, you young devil, you, and let me button you up!' Clean as lily-bells, the pair were laid on the mattress-bed. "'At least they can't fall out,' said Polly, surveying her work with a sigh of content. Everyone else having retired, she sat with Richard before the fire, waiting for his bath-water to reach the boil. He was anxious to know just how she'd fared in his absence, she to hear the full story of his mission. He confessed to her that his offer to load himself up with the whole party had been made in a momentary burst of feeling. Afterwards he had repented his impulsiveness. "'On your account, love, though when I see how well you've managed, you dear clever little woman!' And Polly consoled him being now come honestly to the stage of, "'But, Richard, what else could you do?' "'What, indeed! I knew Emma had no relatives in Melbourne, and who John's intimates might be I had no more idea than the man in the moon.' "'John hasn't any friends. He never had.' "'As for leaving the children in Sarah's charge, if you'll allow me to say so, my dear, I consider your sister Sarah the biggest goose of a female it has ever been my lot to run across.' "'Ah, but you don't really know Sarah yet,' said Polly, and smiled a little through the tears that had risen to her eyes at the tale of John's despair. What Mahony did not mention to her was the necessity he had been under of borrowing money, though Polly was well aware he had left home with but a modest sum in his purse. He wished to spare her feelings. Polly had a curious delicacy—he might almost call it a manly delicacy—with regard to money, and the fact that John had not offered to put hand to pocket— let alone liberally flung a blank cheque at his head, would Mahony knew touch his wife on a tender spot. Nor did Polly herself ask questions. Richard made no allusion to John having volunteered to bear expenses, so the latter had evidently not done so. What a pity! Richard was so particular himself in matters of this kind that he might write her brother down close and stingy. Of course John's distressed state of mind partly served to excuse him— but she could not imagine the calamity that would cause Richard to forget his obligations. She slid her hand into her husband's, and they sat for a while in silence. Then, half to herself, and out of a very different train of thought, she said, "'Just fancy them never crying once for their mother!' "'Talking of friends,' said Sarah, and fastidiously cleared her throat, "'talking of friends, I wonder now what has become of one of those young gentlemen I met at your wedding.' He was—let me see—why, I declare, if I haven't forgotten his name. Oh, I know who you mean. Besides, there was only one, Sarah, Mahony heard his wife reply, and therewith fall into her sister's trap. You mean Purdy, Purdy Smith, who was Richard's best man. Smith, echoed Sarah. La, Polly, why doesn't he make it smythe? It was a warm evening some three weeks later. The store was closed to customers, but Mahony had ensconced himself in a corner of it with a book, since the invasion this was the one place in which he could make sure of finding quiet. The sisters sat on the log-bench before the house, and without seeing them Mahony knew to a nicety how they were employed. Polly darned stockings for John's children. 
Zara was tatting, with her little finger stuck out at right angles to the rest. Mahony could hardly think of this finger without irritation. It seemed to sum up Sarah's whole outlook on life. Meanwhile, Polly's fresh voice went on, relating Purdy's fortunes. He took part, you know, in the dreadful affair on the Eureka last Christmas, when so many poor men were killed. We can speak of it now they've all been pardoned, but then we had to be very careful. Well, he was shot in the ankle, and will always be lame from it. "'What, go hobbling on one leg for the remainder of his days?' "'Oh, my dear,' said Sarah, and laughed. "'Yes, because the wound wasn't properly attended to. "'He had to hide about in the bush for ever so long. "'Later on he went to the Beamishes to be nursed, "'but by that time his poor leg was in a very bad state. "'You know he's engaged, or very nearly so, to Tilly Beamish.' "'What?' said Sarah once more. "'That handsome young fellow engaged to one of those vulgar creatures?' "'Oh, Sarah, not really vulgar.' It isn't their fault they didn't have a better education. They lived right up country where there were no schools. Tilly never saw a town till she was sixteen, but she can sit any horse. Yes, we hope very much Purdy will soon settle down and marry her, though he left the hotel again without proposing. And Polly sighed. There he shows his good taste, my dear. Oh, I'm sure he's fond of Tilly. It's only that his life is so unsettled. He's been a barman at Euroa since then, and the last we heard of him he was shearing somewhere on the Goulburn. He doesn't seem able to stick to anything. And a rolling stone gathers no moss, gave back Sarah sententiously, and in fact Mahony saw the cut-and-dried nod with which he accompanied the words. Here Hempel passed through the store, clad in his Sunday best, his hair plastered flat with bear's grease. "'Going out for a stroll?' asked his master. "'That was my intention, sir. I don't think you'll find I've left any of my duties undone.' "'Oh, go, by all means,' said Mahony curtly, nettled at having his harmless query misconstrued. It pointed a suspicion he had had of late that a change was coming over Hempel. The model employee was a shade less prompt than heretofore to fly at his word, and once or twice seemed actually to be studying his own convenience.' Without knowing what the matter was, Mahony felt it politic not to be over-exacting, even mildly, to conciliate his assistant. It would put him in an awkward fix now that he was on the verge of winding up affairs, should Hempel take it into his head to leave him in the lurch. The lean figure moved on and blocked the doorway. Now there was a sudden babble of cheapy voices, and simultaneously Sarah cried, "'Where have you been, my little cherubs? Come to your aunt and let her kiss you.' But the children, who had frankly no great liking for Aunt Sarah, would, Mahony knew, turn a deaf ear to this display of opportunism, and make a rush for his wife. Laying down his book, he ran out. Polly, cautious. "'It's all right, Richard, I'm being careful.' Polly had let her mending fall, and with each hand held a flaxen-haired child at arm's length. "'John, he dirty boy, what have you been up to?' "'He played he was a digger and sat down in a pool. I couldn't get him to budge,' answered Jerry, and drew his sleeve over his perspiring forehead. "'Oh, fie, for shame!' "'Don't care,' said John, unabashed. "'Don't dare,' echoed his roly-poly sister, who existed but as his shadow. "'Don't care was made to care, don't care was hung,' quoted Aunt Sarah in her severest copy-book tones. Turning his head in his aunt's direction, young John thrust forth a bright pink tongue. Little Emma was not behindhand. Polly jumped up, dropping her work to the ground. "'Johnny, I shall punish you if ever I see you do that again. Now Ellen shall put you to bed instead of Auntie. 
Ellen was Mrs. Hermoda's eldest, and Polly's first regular maidservant. "'Don't care,' repeated Johnny. "'Ellen plays pillars.' "'Ellen plays pillars,' said the echo. Seizing two hot, pudgy hands, Polly dragged the pair indoors, though they held back mainly on principle. They were not affectionate children. They were too strong of will and set of purpose for that. But if they had a fondness for anyone, it was for their Aunt Polly. She was ruler over a drawer full of sugar-sticks, and though she scolded, she never slapped. While this was going on, Hempel stood, the picture of indecision, and eased now one foot, now the other, as if his boots pinched him. At length he blurted out, "'I was wondering, ma'am, um, Miss Turnham, if, since it is an agreeable evening, you would care to take a walk to that ill I told you of.' "'Me? Take a walk? La, no, whatever put such an idea as that into your head?' cried Sarah, and tattered and tattered, keeping time with a pretty little foot. "'I thought, perhaps,' said Hempel meekly. "'I didn't make your thoughts, Mr. Hempel,' retorted Sarah, laying stress on the aspirate. "'Oh, no, ma'am. I hope I didn't presume to suggest such a thing.' And with a hangdog air, Hempel prepared to slink away. "'Well, well,' said Sarah, double-quick, and ceasing to jerk her crochet-needle in and out, she nimbly rolled up her ball of thread. "'Since you're so insistent, and since, mind you, there's no society worth calling such on these diggings—' The truth was, Sarah saw that she was about to be left alone with Marnie. Jerry had sauntered off to meet Ned, and this tete-a-tete was by no means to her mind. She still bore her brother-in-law a grudge for his high-handed treatment of her at the time of John's bereavement. "'As if I had been one of the domestics, my dear, a paid domestic! Ordered me off to the butchers in language that fairly shocked me!' Marnie turned his back and strolled down to the river. He didn't know which was more painful to witness— Hempel's unmanly cringing, or the air of fatuous satisfaction that succeeded it. When he returned, the pair was just setting out. He watched Sarah on Hempel's arm, picking short steps in dainty latchet shoes. As soon as they were well away, he called to Polly. "'The coast's clear. Come for a stroll.' Polly emerged, tying her bonnet-strings. "'Why, where's Sarah?' "'Oh, I see. Oh, Richard, I hope she didn't put on that—' "'She did, my dear,' said Marnie grimly, and tucked his wife's hand under his arm. "'Oh, how I wish she wouldn't,' said Polly, in a tone of concern. "'She does get so stared at, especially of an evening, when there are so many rude men about. But I really don't think she minds, for she has a bonnet in her box all the time.' Miss Sarah was giving Ballarat food for talk by appearing on her promenades in a hat, a large, flat mushroom hat. "'I trust my little woman will never put such a ridiculous object on her head.' "'No, never, at least not unless they become quite the fashion,' answered Polly. "'And I don't think they will. They look too odd.' "'Another thing, love,' continued Marnie, on whom a sudden light had dawned as he stood listening to Sarah's trumpery, "'I fear your sister is trifling with the feelings of our worthy Hempel.' Polly, who had kept her own counsel on this matter, went crimson. "'Oh, do you really think so, Richard?' she asked evasively. "'I hope not, for of course nothing could come of it. Sarah has refused the most eligible offers.' "'Ah, but there are none here to refuse. And if you don't mind my saying so, Paul, anything in trousers seems fish to her net.' On one of their pacings they found Mr. Ocock come out to smoke an evening pipe. The old man had just returned from a flying visit to Melbourne.' He looked glum and careworn, but livened up at the sight of Polly, and cracked one of the mouldy jokes he believed beneficial to a young woman in her condition. 
Still the leading note in his mood was melancholy, and this, although his dearest wish was on the point of being fulfilled. "'Yes, I've got the very crib for Henry at last, Doc. Billy de la Poe's livery stable, top of Lydyard Street. We sold poor Billy up yesterday. The third smash in two days, that makes. Lord, I don't know where it'll end. Things are going a bit quick over there. There's been too much building. They're at me to build, too. Henry is. But I says no. This place is good enough for me. If he's going to be ashamed of how his father lives, he'd better stop away. I'm an old man now, and a poor one. What should I want with a fine new house? And who should I build it for, even if I had the tin? For them two good-for-nothings in there? Not if I know it. Mr. Ocock, you wouldn't believe how kind and clever Tom's been at helping me with the children, said Polly warmly. Yes, and at bottle-washing and sweeping and cooking a pasty. But a female would do it just as well, returned Tom's father with a snort of contempt. Poor old chap, said Marnie, as they passed out of earshot. So even the great Henry's arrival is not to be without its drop of gall. Surely he'll never be ashamed of his father. Who knows? But it's plain he suspects the old boy has made his pile and intends him to fork out, said Marnie carelessly, and with this dismissed the subject. Now that his own days in the colony were numbered, he no longer felt constrained to pump up a spurious interest in local affairs. He consigned them wholesale to that limbo in which for him they had always belonged. The two brothers came striding over the slope. Ned, clad in blue serge shirt and corduroys, laid an affectionate arm around Polly's shoulder, and tossed his hat into the air on hearing that the salamander, as he called Sarah, was not at home. "'For I've tons to tell you, Poll, old girl, and when my lady sits there turning up her nose at everything a chap says, somehow the spunk goes out of one.' Polly had baked a large cake for her darling, and served out generous slices. Then, drawing up a chair, she sat down beside him to drink in his news. From his place at the farther end of the table, Mahony studied the trio. These three young faces, which were so much alike that they might have been different readings of one and the same face. Polly, by reason of her woman's lot, looked considerably the oldest. Still, the lamplight wiped out some of the shadows, and she was never more girlishly vivacious than with Ned, entering as she did with zest into his plans and ideas, more sister now than wife. And Ned showed at his best with Polly. He laid himself out to divert her, forgot to brag or to swear, and so natural did it seem for brother to open his heart to sister that even his egoistic chatter passed muster. As for young Jerry, who in a couple of days was to begin work in the same claim as Ned, he sat round eyes, his thoughts writ large on his forehead. Mahony translated them thus. How in the world could I ever have sat prim and proper on the school bench, when all this, change, adventure, romance, was awaiting me? Jerry was only, Mahony knew, to push a wheelbarrow from hole to water and back again for many a week to come— but for him it would certainly be a golden barrow and laden with gold, so greatly had Ned's tales fired his imagination. The onlooker felt odd man out, debarred as he was by his profounder experience, from sharing in the young people's light-legged dreams. He took up his book, but his reading was cut into by Ned's sprightly account of the magpie rush, by his description of an engine at work on the Eureka, and of the wooden air-pipes that were being used to ventilate deep sinkings. There was nothing Ned did not know and could not make entertaining. One was forced, almost against one's will, to listen to him. 
and on this particular evening, when he was neither sponging nor acting the big gun, Mahony toned down his first sweeping judgment of his young relative. Ned was all talk, and what impressed one so unfavourably, his grumbling, his extravagant boastfulness, was the mere thistle-down of the moment, puffed off into space. It mattered little that he harped continually on chucking up his job. Two years had passed since he came to Ballarat, and he was still working for hire in somebody else's hole. He still groaned over the hardships of the life, and still toiled on, and all the rest was just the froth and braggadocio of aimless youth. End of Part 2 Chapter 6